episode. Hey, creepies. It's Friday night. Do you know where your kids are? <laughs> I don't know where mine are. Because I don't have any. <laughs> mine is with her dad for the weekend, so... Party time. <laughs> I'm just looking forward to sleeping in time. There you go. That's the best kind of time, if you ask me. Yeah, no, actually, that's not a huge deal. She's 14, but although sometimes I do feel like there's a way to wake me up, she'll figure it out. <laughs> Slamming doors, dropping pots and pans, all the fun stuff. <laughs> Maybe not quite that, because then I'd wake up upstairs like, what the f*** is going on there? What's going on? <laughs> More like a text, like, are you up? <laughs> You're like, well, I am now, thank you. Although last weekend it was sweet, she uh, came and she brought me breakfast in bed. Aww. She made me eggs and toast. And Very sweet. A coffee that needed way more creamer than she was generous with, but it was Thought good. <laughs> it was. I drank it and ate it and all the things. That's so. sweet. That's sweet that she did that. Yeah, it was a little earlier than I wanted to get up, but it's hard to be mad because she was trying to do something so nice. Right, yeah. Aw. See, upside of kids. I'm having, you know, these debates with you. You guys heard last week. That's because I just keep reminding you of the annoying things. I know. I keep talking to me about the sweet stuff, too. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're just enjoying this Friday night. Nice weather. It was like 90 out today. We're drinking some St. Julian S'mores wine. Big fan. Very sweet. Nice dessert sipping wine. Yeah. Definitely desserty if you're wanting something more on the sweet side. I don't get the marshmallow taste. I do get a little bit of the chocolate. I think you nailed it on the head. Um, you and Pat said that it was more like a chocolate covered cherry. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel. I definitely taste cherry in there and chocolate. And maybe I might get a teeny bit of marshmallow on the very end of the aftertaste. See, I don't know. But I it's get just that. like so subtle. But it is a red wine. Yeah. So that's probably where the cherry comes from. Right, in. for sure. But it's still, I, I, I like it. It's no PB&J St. Julian, but it's, it's a close. It's a good summer sipping. Yeah. Dessert wine. Definitely. Um, I went and seen The Little Mermaid. How'd you feel about it? some friends and my daughter's friend. And, oh, it was so cute. I was singing the scuttlebutt for like a week. <laughs> You'll know when you know. <laughs> Um, but Sounds cute. I feel that for all the haters and people that got mad, what's her name, Haley? Um, I don't know exactly. H- Haley Bailey. Haley Bailey. Haley Bailey. I don't know. That sounds too cheesy. Hallie Bailey. Halle Berry. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever her name is, yeah, she did a phenomenal job. Her voice was amazing. She's beautiful, and okay, so she doesn't have the darkest, like, red hair ever, but it was more like reality red hair. Yeah. And I don't care. I think she did a great job. It was a good movie. I was there for it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I definitely need I to see that. I laughed out loud. Oh, so. man. Yeah, that's on my, that's on my to-do list to see. Yeah, I, I don't know too much about her, but I have heard her voice, and she sounds like she has a beautiful voice. Oh, and shout out to Melissa McCarthy. <gasps> Phenomenal. Really? I figured she would kill Phenomenal. That. People, I guess, gave her some shit for the makeup. 
Um, I didn't hear that, but my friend told me that, the one that went with us. And I think the makeup was amazing. Really? I didn't see the... They're saying it didn't really look the same as the cartoon. It's a fucking cartoon. Right. It's not... Like, and it's a different movie. Like, I, I get it. Like They're making it their own. Yeah. Like, if it's exactly the same, it's not going to be, like, new or exciting. And they changed some things to make it theirs and they added some songs like and there's some songs that they didn't sing yeah like they skipped over the whole chef part okay yeah but then they added a solo for eric okay. so there's a little bit of you yeah, know a twist going yeah. on but it was good it's good yeah i definitely need to see that one i should have seen that uh over so i went and saw fast x the new fast and furious movie um wasn't my cup of tea i really didn't enjoy it I'm sorry if there's, like, diehard Fast and Furious fans listening right now and you're, like, loved it or something, but I just feel like... And I haven't seen all of the Fast and Furious movies, but from where it started, like, at the very beginning, like, the first couple or even few, I feel like now it's just so extra with, like... It's so unrealistic compared to, like, how it used to be, if that makes sense, like... I don't know. Like they're just trying to drag it on longer. Yeah, like it was just too much. And it was now too it's extra. now it's for the money, not for the love. Exactly. Of the money. Exactly. Um, but I don't know because there's ten, so I'm I'm nine behind. Okay, <laughs> so you've just seen the first one. I think the first one, maybe the second one. I don't recall, but yeah, I think I've seen the first. I think I've seen the first two for sure. Maybe the third one, and I believe I saw the fifth one also, but. Like I said, I haven't seen all of them, so I'm not, like, a true, you know, a true diehard fan for that franchise. It's not fully my thing, but, yeah, that movie wasn't it for me. Should have went and saw A Little Mermaid instead. <laughs> but now I'll look forward to watching it uh, within the next couple weeks at some point, hopefully. When it hits the Disney Channel, you come over here and I'll watch it. Perfect. Watch it even better. Get a home, home viewing. Sometimes that's, like, even better. But yeah, um, that's oh, kind of... Oh, also sidebar, sorry. Yeah, no. Did you know you can order your pop and popcorn online and have it ready when you get there? So you just grab it and go? You totally sound like an advertisement, and I love it. For, wait, which theater? MJR. Really? It's more than just a movie. It's a big night out. <laughs> See, MJR hit us up. Lowe's got all the advertisements for you. No, my friend ordered the tickets online, and then she's like, well, do you want to drink? And I'm like, well, fountain pop, you know, whatever. She got the, And when we walked in, the tickets were on our phones, which yeah. we were a few minutes late, so nobody even asked to see our tickets. Right. But then we walked up to the counter, and it was in a little bag, and we just grabbed it and go. Dang, I never knew you She paid that. for it online. It was just sitting there like... Wow. Yeah. Okay, Popcorn, okay. candy, bag... The cups were in there. It was... Wow. Whole works. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of nice. Yeah. I might have to do that next time. Skip the lines, bitch. Right? Dang. Especially if you're going on, like, a busy time of day. Like, if you go on, like, a Friday night or something, that would be the time to do it. Oh, my God. We drove from Oxford to Rochester to watch it. It was completely... I walked up and I said, two tickets for me and my daughter there behind us. He's like, these are the last two seats. I'm like, um, I actually really need four. And he's like, well, there are some in the very, very front row, but that oh. was it. I was like, okay, well, how about what's the next show? Because it was like a one thirty show. Yeah. I said, okay, what's the next show? And he's like, 2.15. I said, okay, we'll go to that one. 
two seats, three seats available. That was it. I'm like totally sold out. I was like the Little Mermaid Memorial Day. That's what people wanted to do. And he's like opening weekend, baby. So she looked up MJR in Waterford. So we booked it a half an hour to that one. And we made it. And it was weird because half the theater was empty. Wow. So yeah. crazy, the difference. Yeah. Location, location, location. But yeah, we, we went in there and we grabbed our stuff and got to the seats and it was a good old time. Dang. Hey, well, it was like an adventure too then for you. <laughs> it was. Well, then I'm glad it was worth it. I'm glad the movie was good for all the running around and figuring out how to, or when to see it exactly. But yeah, definitely... Definitely on my uh, to-do list for the upcoming weeks. Um, but yeah, that's kind of all my life update. I, don't, I haven't been watching too much or anything exciting or whatever. Um, nope, we did watch something tonight, but you'll find that out next week. Yeah, we're saving that. So tune in if you want to know what that is. So I'm ready. Hopefully Dax is ready. What up? And Crystal, give us the lowdown. All right. Today we are going to be talking about two horrible men, Mr. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, a.k.a. the Toolbox Killers. So I'm kind of going to like give you the lowdown and background on each of these men before all their, like, uh, conjoined crimes happened. Um, so we're going to start out with Mr. Lawrence Bittaker. So, Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker, he was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on September 27th in 1940. And he was kind of like an unwanted child of a couple who had chosen to not have children, So, you know, he was an uh uh-oh, oopsie baby. And because of this, he was placed in an orphanage by his birth mother. And he was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker um, when he was just an infant. So he didn't stay long in the orphanage. He was pretty much adopted, like, very quickly uh, after being there. So... Lawrence's adoptive father, he worked in the aviation industry, which required the family to obviously move around a lot um, all around the United States throughout his childhood. Um, And he kind of, he was uh, kind of a little bad boy, a little bad kid. He was first arrested for shoplifting at just the age of 12. And he obtained a minor criminal record over the next four years after multiple arrests for the same exact thing, um, petty theft and shoplifting, things like that, which brought him to the attention of juvenile authorities. One would say a kleptomaniac. That's, yep, that's a ding, ding, ding moment for me and Lo, but we're going to keep that between us. We had a couple ding ding dings just in the first seconds between I know, us. right? Sorry, guys. Inside jokes. Um, <laughs> but Lawrence would later claim that these numerous theft-related offenses committed throughout his childhood and, like, young adulthood, 
they were attempts to compensate for the lack of love that he received from his parents. So basically, he was claiming that, like, it was like a cry for help because he wasn't receiving the attention and love that he was, like, wanting from his parents. So he was kind of, like, acting out to get their attention, I guess. Um, I feel like there's other ways to go about that, but, you know, that's what Lawrence decided he wanted to do. Um, but, yeah, so he actually reported to have an IQ of 138, but he was considered in school to kind of be on, like, the lower end, and he ended up dropping out of high school in 1957. By this stage in his... Um, childhood he and his adoptive parents they were living in California and within a year of dropping out of school he had already been arrested for car theft a hit and run and evading arrest so he was just he was just on a roll with all of his arrests going on so for those offenses he was ultimately imprisoned in the California Youth Authority where he remained until he was 18 years old. And then when he was released, Lawrence discovered that his adoptive parents, they just completely disowned him and moved to another state. Like, And then he literally, for the rest of his life, never saw them again. Which, that's sad. I think it's sad that, obviously, he says that he didn't feel love and attention from his parents. And obviously, like, they disowned him after all of this, which is sad to an extent, but also, like, just don't commit crimes. You know, like, it's not really an excuse. Like, shitty things happen to good people all the time, and they don't commit crimes for it, you know? Yeah, I mean, maybe if they didn't give up on him, or maybe if he tried harder, they both could have did better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely room for growth that they both could have done at that time. So now let's kind of jump into who Roy Norris is. So he was born in Greeley, Colorado on February 5th, 1948. And Roy was, you know, he was conceived out of wedlock, which, you know, was a big no-no back in the 40s. Um, And his parents had to marry to kind of, you know, avoid the social stigma that surrounded that you know people didn't really approve of people having babies before marriage at that point in time so they kind of did a quick little wedding to solve the problem i guess but it usually doesn't solve the problems but you know has he ever learned to do a roundhouse kick because his name's norris (laughs) like chuck norris is that what you're where you're getting with this it took me a second, and then I'm like, I feel like that's what she means. <laughs> he might have. I don't know. We'll keep listening to see. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> Maybe it's at the end, people. Stay tuned. That'll be the special special content info at the end. <laughs> um, but Roy's extended family lived within, like, a close, short distance of his parents' house due to his grandfather's real estate investments. So his father worked in a scrapyard, and his mother was a drug-addicted housewife. He occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood, 
and young adulthood, but was repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the state of Colorado, kind of like back and forth. Um, you know, he his mom was obviously having a hard time with drugs, and his dad wasn't totally around a lot, so he did hop back and forth a lot because of that. And according to Roy, some of his childhood memories were just filled with wrongful accusations while living with his biological parents. Um, You know, things of being neglected by many of the foster families that he lived with and frequently being denied just a normal or a good amount of food and clothing that just like a normal person would need. He was also claimed to have been sexually abused when he was in the care of um, one of the foster families, which was a Hispanic family. And he later stated that he had a prejudice that he held toward Hispanic people because of that experience that he had, you know, the neglect and abuse that he says that he endured as a child when he was placed, you know, with a Hispanic family. Um, so he says that's kind of where his, I'm not biased, but uh, like prejudice kind of lies with with that. So while he was living with his birth parents at the age of 16, Roy visited the home of a female relative who she was in her early 20s. And he began speaking to her in kind of like a sexually suggestive manner. She was like, dude, stop, you know, she ordered him to like leave the house and she told his dad and once she told his dad he threatened him you know i'm gonna beat you like all of this stuff and roy then right after that he stole his dad's car and drove into the rocky mountains where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery in his arm yeah i know love made a face and it's just random it is It is very random. I've never heard of anybody committing suicide that way. I mean, maybe it's more common than I think, but I've never heard it. Also, that sounds, like, painful, does it not? Oh, my gosh. Um, He was unsuccessful, obviously, in his attempt, but um, that must have been a very dramatic afternoon, you know, (laughs) go from saying something sexually offensive to a female relative, and then she tells her dad, and then your dad says that he's gonna beat you, so then you steal his car, drive into the Rocky Mountains, and put pure air into your artery. Like, what an afternoon that Roy had. I'll show them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was later reported as a runaway, and he returned to live back with his parents. Um, and upon his return home, Roy's parents informed him that he and his younger sister were unwanted children and they intended to divorce when both of them reached adolescence. So kind of, you know, a parallel there with Roy and Lawrence's families kind of abandoning them in a way, you know, both not having great childhoods growing up, but also like then being abandoned by your family. Um, And a year after Roy's parents told him that, he dropped out of school and he joined the United States Navy 
Um, and he was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to serve in the Vietnam War in 69, although he did not see um, active combat during his four-month tour of duty. He was honorably discharged from the Navy after one tour of duty. So that's kind of a little bit on their like childhoods and like growing up backgrounds and everything. So some of their first offenses, so we're going to talk about back to Lawrence. So if you remember, he was in the California Youth Authority and within days of his parole after he got out, he was arrested again for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. And he was, for that, sentenced to 18 months imprisonment to be served in the Oklahoma State Reformatory. And he was later transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prison in Springfield, Missouri to serve the rest of his um, sentence. He was then released in 1960 from prison and then quickly after, just like, you know, old times, couldn't break the habit, he went right back to his ways and reverted back to crime. Within months of his release, he had been arrested in Los, An Los Angeles for robbery, which I feel like was his favorite form of crime. <laughs> And that's the go-to. That's his you know. go-to, yeah. It's the one I'm best at. <laughs> it's the one he's most comfortable with. <laughs> um, and then in May of 61, he was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment while incarcerated for his robbery. He was characterized um, by a psychiatrist as being highly manipulative. The psychiatrist also described Lawrence as having considerable concealed hostility. So he had anger issues. So he was an angry man who was manipulative, who loved his crime. Um, he was then released on parole in 63 after completing two years of his sentence, which is so crazy to me. Like, he's sentenced to 15 years, but he completes two and then he gets parole. I mean, I don't know. It's the 60s. It's the 60s. Um, and then in October of 64, he was again imprisoned for parole violation. He underwent further examinations by two independent psychiatrists, both of which classified him as a borderline psychopath, a highly manipulative individual unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Now... Lawrence explained to one of them that his criminal activities gave him this feeling of like self-importance. It gave him like confidence and like felt like he had a power. Um, although he insisted circumstantial matters that pertain to his environment and upbringing decreased his ability to resist committing crimes. So basically he's like, blaming it on his childhood he's like i'm this way because of how i was raised and all of that jazz um so he was prescribed antipsychotic medication um and then a year later he was again released back into society um and yet again one month after this like what is this his fourth parole now i believe 
He was arrested again and convicted of theft and leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years, but then released in 1970. Um, and then in 1971, he was arrested again for burglary. So basically, he's just doing the same old shit, like, on repeat. He's in and out of jail. Just all, all again. He gets arrested. He gets released. He gets arrested. He gets released. It's kind of like the cycle that he's going Wash and repeat. Literally. Um, Would you think with that kind of record, like... Each time you got arrested, they'd keep you longer. You would think, yeah, you'd think that would make sense. But no, they're like, okay, you've been here for like a year. You can go now, even though you were sentenced to like 17 years. No more robberies, please. Yeah. They're like, we believe in you this time. Fifth time's a charm. Sixth time's a charm. I wonder if it's the same lawyer. Maybe. I picture. the same deal. Like in Liar Liar. Yes. <laughs> Stop breaking the law, asshole. Yep. Literally. <laughs> That's probably what it was. <laughs> now, in 1974, things got a little bit more serious for Lawrence. Um, he was arrested again, but this time it wasn't for just like, you know, stealing cars and burglary and all that. Um, this time. Lawrence was arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder after he stabbed a young supermarket employee who accused him of stealing. Which is kind of funny to me because, like, I don't know if that triggered him or something, but, like, it's probably not out of the realm of possibility for all the crime that he had done, all the theft that he had committed. Um... But the supermarket employee, he had observed Lawrence stealing a steak and he followed him outside into the store's parking lot where he asked Lawrence whether he had forgotten to pay. You know, he's like, yo, dude, I think you forgot to pay for that steak. And Lawrence responded by stabbing him in the chest, narrowly just missing his heart. Um... He attempted to, like, run, but he was quickly restrained by two other supermarket employees, so he was caught, like, right away. The employee, Gary Louie, he survived the stabbing, and Lawrence was convicted of the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon, and he was sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. Which I think is, like so crazy that he got like the lower end of the sentencing because he already has such a record i mean obviously not a record with violent crimes just like it's it's the first violent one so they're gonna believe that it was a fluke oh my god which is just crazy but i don't know i need to get his lawyer on file just in case right exactly (laughs) so now we'll jump to roy So, in November of 1969, Roy was arrested for his first known sexual offense. Um, He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. So, in the second incident of the two, he had attempted to force his way into the car of a woman who was by herself. And then three months later, in February... He attempted to to deceive another woman by herself into allowing him to enter her home when she obviously, like, refused and didn't want him to come into her house. He then attempted to break into her house, and she called the police, 
And luckily, police got there and arrived and got him before he had the opportunity to cause that woman any harm. Now, less than three months after this offense, Roy was diagnosed by military psychologists with schizoid personality disorder, and he was given an administrative discharge from the Navy under terms labeled as psychological problems. AKA, get him off the base, we don't want him here. Yeah, AKA, he's got problems too deep for us. Now, in May of 1970, Roy was on bail for his latest offense where he attacked a female student who he was, I guess, stalking a lot on the grounds of the San Diego State University campus. Um, Roy repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock until she like fell down to her knees before then he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk as he was like kneeling against her lower back. And then shortly after that, Roy was charged with assault with a deadly weapon and he was committed to five years imprisonment at the Atacascardo State Hospital where he was classified as mentally disordered sex offender. So he wasn't just a regular old sex offender, he was mentally disordered sex offender, which I've never even heard of before. Hey, they have to get the titles correct. That's, yep, that's the legit title he was holding. Not a, not a good one to have. Not a good title. And yet, we have yet to break a five-year sentence. Yep, yep. Don't understand that, but... Um, so, yeah, he was released from that state hospital in 75 with five years probation. Um, he was declared by doctors as an individual who was no further danger to others. Um, and just three months after his release, which is just funny because they're like, oh, he won't hurt anybody else. But, yeah, no, three months after they said that, he approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach, and he offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined... Roy parked his motorcycle and grabbed her scarf, twisting it around her neck before informing her that he intended to rape her and dragged her into nearby bushes. Um, And then sadly, she was obviously scared and fearing for her life, so she didn't really resist the rape. Now, although it was reported to police, They were initially unable to find Roy. However, one month later, the victim saw his motorcycle and got the license plate number, and then she immediately gave it to police, and Roy was arrested for the rape. And one year later, he was tried and convicted for this offense and then sent to, have you, I don't know why I said have you, but you know the California men's colony. No, I've never been there. (laughs) You have not? Okay. In Obispo, where good old Lawrence was at. Um, And yeah, so while he was incarcerated there, that's where he met and befriended Lawrence and kind of where the madness began and ensued. I gotta say, though, that's kind of risky, like... 
on your motorcycle trying to choke someone with their scarf. Like, that's not a car that you can pull her into. You're on a bike. Yeah, I know. Like, he gave no Fs. He was like, well. Like, that's like, I mean, obviously he knew he could overpower her. Right. And that he was stronger than her. But, like, that's that's just risky. Yeah. In my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. Yeah, he, he literally gave no Fs. He was, well, he was a mentally, what was it? Mentally. Psychopath screwed up person. Yeah, that works too. That works too. So while in this prison, Lawrence and Roy, they initially, they became like loosely acquainted. And this was in 1977, one year after Roy had arrived there. And Lawrence's initial impression of Roy, once he, like, arrived, was that he was a savvy individual who largely associated with hardened criminals from motorcycle gangs and, like, contraband drugs, people who dealt that and everything. Um, And the two, they slowly became closer and closer, still kind of, like, on an acquaintance level, and they began slowly talking in like friendly terms when Roy taught Lawrence how to construct jewelry. Just a very random thing to teach someone, but you know. Talking about arts and crafts in prison. The big crimes we've done for the little time we've done. Yeah. <laughs> we can relate to that. So according to Roy, Lawrence saved him from being attacked by fellow inmates on at least two different occasions. And so that kind of made him a little bit more tight. And by 1978, the pair had become very close acquaintances. They discovered that they shared an interest in sexual violence and misogyny. And Roy also told Lawrence... Um, that the biggest, like, thrill for him was seeing frightened young women, um, like, adding that that was the main reason that he had, like, a lengthy record for all these sexual offenses. So he kind of was, like, opening up to him, telling him how he felt about all of his, like, weird psychopathic fantasies and everything like that. And Lawrence, who he wasn't known to have committed any sexual offenses, you know, prior to him meeting Roy, he told Roy that if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her so that he there wouldn't be, like, a witness to the crime at all. No, just evidence of a body. Right, yeah, exactly. Makes sense. So crazy. Where do you find these people, Kay? Oh, gosh. On the scary parts of the internet. (laughs) The dark, dark web. The dark, dark, deep, dark web. Now, when alone, the two of them would, like, regularly discuss plans to assault and murder teenage girls after they were released. They were, like, making plans. They're like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And they, like, shared this fantasy and it evolved into, like, this big, huge, elaborate plan to murder one girl of each teenage year from the years of 13 through 19, which is just so specific and sick. And ew. And ew. And the pair, they, like, vowed to each other to become reacquainted once they were both released from prison. So, like, they had this whole fucking plot 
to like come together and teamwork all of this. My God. I, I know, isn't it sick? So Lawrence was released on parole from prison in October of 78, while Roy was released on parole three months later in January 1979. So they really weren't far much of a difference of getting out. It was just a three-month difference that Lawrence had to wait for Roy to get out of prison. I'm sure a good behavior, the lawyer can get him out within a couple days. Apparently, that's the theme that they got going on. So, from February to June of 1979, Lawrence and Roy picked up over 20 female hitchhikers. Now... Uh, for these 20 female hitchhikers, the two of them, they did not assault these girls in any form. They didn't do anything. They used this as, like, practice runs. It was, like, a way for them to develop their, like, technique to lure the girls into the van voluntarily and, you know, discovered secluded locations. And It was, like, a bunch of practice runs for them so that they could, like, once they wanted to really start, they could, like, nail it down, if that makes sense. So Were they using real girls for a practice? Yep, so 20, they just picked up 20 female hitchhikers, and they didn't do anything. They dropped them off to wherever the girls wanted to go. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. they didn't commit any crimes, but they they were just practicing on picking girls up. And getting then, like, their lingo down, yes, getting the vibe down. Exactly, like, gotcha. so they can become like experts on... on Spread the word, girls. these guys are totally cool, feel safe to drive with them. Right, exactly. Like They wanted, they wanted things to run perfectly in their sick plan. Um, so in late April, the pair found like an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains... And Lawrence broke open the locked gate with a crowbar and he replaced it with a lock that he owned so that they could get like in and out no problem whenever they wanted to. So now we'll get into the real victims that once their practice runs were over, the ones that actually sadly, you know, were not part of the practice runs. They were the real deal uh, part of their sick scheme. So, the first girl was Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. Now, Lawrence and Roy killed their first victim, which was Lucinda. She was 16 years old, and this happened on June 24th, 1979. Lucinda was last seen having, um, excuse me, leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. In his written accounts of the events of this day, Lawrence stated that he and Roy first finished constructing the bed that the pair had installed in the rear of the van, um, which underneath they placed tools, clothes, and a cooler filled with beer and soft drinks. So they made it cozy for him. Yeah, that's what he's trying to say, but, like, it's sounding gross and creepy. Um, So at approximately 11 a.m., the two of them drove to the beach area, not, quote, drinking beer, smoking grass, and flirting with girls. Lawrence says that we had no set routine. So they were there, like, all day. So then approximately at 7.46 p.m., 
Roy spotted Lucinda walking down a side street toward her grandmother's house, and he said to Lawrence, there's a cute little blonde. After unsuccessfully attempting to, like, kind of, like, lure her, entice her to come into their van, um, you know, they were, like, offering her marijuana, they were offering her a ride home, but, you know, Lucinda was like, no, thank you, no, thank you. Maybe if they were at a cure, I can there. Right, yeah, you know. They, they, that didn't exist in the 70s. I was going to say, the cure in the 70s, now that would have been... Mr. Coffee. Enticing. <laughs> so, Lawrence and Roy, they drove further ahead after she kept saying no, and they parked alongside a driveway. Roy then exited the vehicle, opened the passenger side sliding door, and leaned into the van with his head and shoulders kind of like hidden from the view behind the door. And when Lucinda was passing the van, Roy, he said, he kind of talked to her a little bit, he exchanged a few words with her, but then ultimately he dragged her into the van and closed the door. Using a ruse, they would repeat in most of their murders Lawrence turned the radio to full volume as Roy, he bound Lucinda's arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape as Lawrence drove Lucinda to like the fire road in the mountains where he had switched, you know, the lock so that they could get in. And despite, you know, she was screaming when she was taken, she quickly gained her composure and Lawrence wrote that she displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. Which is just gross to hear him talk about, like, he's the one doing all this stuff to her, and he's like, oh, she really held her composure. No, she was probably just trying to stay calm mm-hmm. and try to think, like, how do I get out of this? Yep. Or she was frozen with fear, like, I don't know. Like, I don't like that he thought that she was just like, oh, yeah, this is what's happening. Like, she, like, was okay with it or something. No, this is where the, you know, sociopath of him kicks in. Exactly. So, at the fire road... Roy first raped Lucinda after instructing Lawrence to go take a walk and return in one hour. So upon returning to the van, Lawrence then raped her when Roy left. So they both like took a turn, which is just gross. Um, And during the second like rape, incident that was happening by Norris in Lawrence's absence, Lucinda asked him whether they intended to kill her or not, and Roy told her no, um, and in response, Lucinda requested to be allowed time to pray before she was killed, if that was their intention, which is just so sad. You know, she's like, please, if you're going to kill me, just let me have time to pray before which is like the most simple request you can make in in that kind of in that kind of situation. I don't think Roy deserves to have Norris as a last name. No, he does not. I'm not getting Chuck vibes. No, not at all. Chuck, 
Yeah, not even close. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> so, in their accounts of the actual murder, Lawrence and Roy, they gave kind of different stories as to, you know, who argued over whether they should kill her rather than let her go. And each of them obviously stated that the other one said that they should kill her. Um, and that Lucinda pleaded for only a second to pray before Roy attempted to m manually strangle her with his hands. After approximately 45 seconds, he became disturbed at like seeing the look in her eyes and he ran to the front of the van and started vomiting. Lawrence then took over and started manually strangling her until she collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. He oh then twisted a wire coat hanger around her neck with vice grip pliers um, until her convulsions, convulsions like stopped. Um, and then she was denied, which is so just even more sick, she was denied her request to pray before they killed her. It's like she's asking for a sec, like seconds to pray. Please just like let her pray if you're gonna kill her and they didn't even let her do that. It's just disgusting. It was so brutal. So brutal. And her body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon that Lawrence had picked. Um, and according to Roy, after Lawrence threw her over the canyon, um, he assured him that the animals would eat her up so there wouldn't be any evidence left. The shower curtain, too? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. With her DNA on it? Right, exactly, exactly. So, next victim, um, on July 8th, 1979, two weeks after the murder of Lucinda Schaefer, Lawrence and Roy encountered 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. She was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway, and as the pair slowed the van to offer her a lift, another vehicle pulled over and offered Hall the same thing, which she accepted. So she took that ride over theirs, which is a huge blessing in disguise, um, but Lawrence and Roy followed the vehicle from a distance until she exited that vehicle um which was near redondo beach which i'm like are you serious like you're gonna follow that car all the way down to where she gets out like i don't know um you can't think like them i know i can't i can't wrap my head around <laughs> it <laughs> so on this occasion roy hid in the back of the van in order to kind of trick her into believing that lawrence was traveling alone and inside the van, Lawrence offered her a cold drink from the cooler. And Roy, who was hiding behind like a bedspread in the back of the van, he pounced on her when she attempted to like grab the drink. And she was fighting back, you know, it was a hard fight. But he managed to subdue her by twisting her arm behind her back, causing her to scream in pain. And then Roy gagged her with adhesive tape and bound her wrists and ankles. They then drove her to a location in the San Gabriel Mountains, um, kind of further from where they had taken Lucinda. 
Um, and at this location, she was raped twice by Lawrence and once by Roy. Um, and while Lawrence was raping her for the second time, Roy saw what he believed to be headlights from a vehicle approaching. And Lawrence clasped his hand over her mouth and dragged her into like some nearby bushes as Roy drove kind of further away so that they felt like they weren't going to get caught. Um, and then when he returned, they drove to a location further in the mountains and Lawrence forced this girl to walk uphill naked alongside the road and then perform oral sex on him before ordering her to pose for several Polaroid pictures. Oh my god. I can't imagine the the trauma she was going through, just the the grossness she felt, the fear she felt, the oh yeah, violation, just all of it, like her whole mindset, like she probably just felt so numb and out of control, and it was probably like a total just kill me now out of body like, experience, like ugh, that's I just sick. And it just probably just felt like, I mean, this probably all happened in a night or two. Right. Mm-hmm. But it probably felt like just forever. Yeah. Like she never probably ending. was like, just let it end, you know. It's just so sad. Um, and after that, they drove her to a third location where, again, Lawrence walked her up a nearby hill. Um, and this time, Roy drove to a nearby store to go buy alcohol And when Roy returned, Lawrence was alone and in possession of two of the Polaroid pictures that he had taken, um, where he depicted her face and expressions where, like, Roy says that she just had sheer terror on her face as she was, like, begging for her life to be spared. Well, no shit. I mean, dude. Exactly. So, Lawrence told Roy that he told this girl that he was going to kill her and challenge her to give him as many reasons as she could to come up with as to why she should be allowed to live before thrusting an ice pack through her ear into her brain. Oh my god. He then turned her body over and thrust the ice, pa- ice pick excuse me, into her other ear stomping on it until the handle broke. Dude, I get a brain freeze just from drinking a Slurpee too fast. Uh, yeah. Could you I don't even imagine? I can't even imagine. He then strangled her before throwing her body off of a cliff. So, these, I mean, these guys are just disgustingly brutal. Like, horribly brutal. Clearly. Yeah. So... These horrible crimes, sadly, did not stop here, um, but today we're going to stop right here. Um, this is going to be a two-parter, so definitely come back next week. We're going to talk about, um, I believe, four more victims, and then we're going to talk about the investigation of the whole process, um, and just more of the horrible horrible acts that these guys these guys did like this whole scheme plan that they had going on it's just sickening and there's just so much to cover 
that we figured we'd make it into a two-parter. Give you some time to digest the first part because it's so freaking brutal and gross. Then when you're you're back in the mood, you can come back and listen to part two. These are like prison bestie boos that should have never met. I know. They're literally like, the. why did they have to meet? Like, if they never met... I mean, they would have still committed crimes, but I feel like they wouldn't have been as brutal because I think when they got together... Oh, they fed off each other. For sure, and it just escalated, and they got more gruesome and brutal and gross and disgusting and just out of hand. Way out of hand. Way unnecessary. So unnecessary, so sickening. This, This whole story just, like, it makes me sick to my stomach, and it's not even over, so... Yeah, take some time to digest all of that information that we just threw at you of these two psychopaths. Drink Um, some wine. Yeah, drink some wine. Go watch something happy or go listen to like a happy story. Go listen to one of our less classicslier episodes where it's a little bit more light and fun. (laughs) Um, And then once you're mentally ready and you've prepared yourselves, come back next week and we will dive right back into these two maniacs and uh, between then go listen to like a armchair expert yeah. mm-hmm. or a whitney cummings yes call me dad. daddy yep. mm-hmm. exactly just you know any of those i feel like would break this up very well or like go watch go watch the little mermaid go yes. do something positive for your soul <laughs> Go listen to the Scuttlebutt song. Yeah, because that's for sure what I'm going to need to do after just recording this first part. (laughs) But yeah, um, thank you guys so much for listening. And do not forget to come back next week for part two when, yeah, we just finish this horrible, horrible case. And... Yeah. I left you speechless, didn't I? I almost said you're lying again. It's okay. Go for it. As I'm saying, stay creepy. That's right. That's what you do. You stay creepy. (laughs) But not that creepy. Not that creepy. Not like toolbox killer creepy, like horror fan cutie creepy. And Chuck Norris, if you're out there, you might want to reconsider changing your last name just so there's clearly no connection. Yeah, it needs to be no relation to you because... I would I would want to change my last name if it was Norris or Bitaker at this point. I don't know a Bitaker, so Me neither, so luckily, hopefully if your last name's Bitaker, our condolences. <laughs> or if it is and you're related, feel free to write us and tell us some crazy shit. <laughs> how you escaped that family last yeah. name. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for keeping it real and keeping it creepy and checking in. And on that note, we got to go. Bye, guys. Bye.